Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sam Gregg. He is the Director of Research for the Acton Institute, as well as the author of 13 books, uh, the most recent of which I saw listed on the website was Natural Law, Economics, and the Common Good. Sam, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Wonderful. I've never been with an optimistic curmudgeon before, so <laughs> happy to be chatting with you. I, I'm so glad. Well, the... the the, the idea behind the show is all about uh, talking with people who kind of recognize things that are, are less than ideal, but have hope that there are, in fact, things we could we can understand a little bit better. And uh, at least from what I've heard from you speak and seen your work, uh, you strike me as somebody who kind of has both of those, that, that you do have a great way of analyzing problems, but uh, you, you never get to despair. Is that, is that fair? I, I think that's fair to say. I, I'm, I'm a conservatively inclined person, so therefore I have a deep appreciation for the uh, the limits that are imposed on us by the fact that we are human beings. But at the same time, I'm a person of hope. So I think that particularly when you're doing things like where I spend a lot of my time, which is in the realm of political economy, you're trying to bring together sort of universal insights into the human condition that arise from good economics. Good economics is not particularly complicated. It's basically a few principles that really haven't changed that much since Adam Smith broke the world of nations. But it also provides us with paths forward. So you need to have a realistic understanding of, and by realism I mean truthful. I don't mean pragmatic. I mean truthful. You need to have a truthful appreciation for the reality that exists around you. But that doesn't mean that the truth becomes paralyzed that reality becomes something that is somewhat of a, a prison. I think a lot of people mm. are tempted to give up. They look around and they say, human beings are fallible. Therefore, the notion that we can extradite lots and lots of people from poverty, that's a sort of forlorn hope. Good economics would say, yes, we are fallible. We are, have a certain degree of self-interest that drives us. There are limits to the human condition. There are things called scarcity, etc., but when we take all those things into account and we look at them and we study them, they also provide us as a basis for saying, well, that doesn't work, but this might. So let's try that. And also, I think, reflecting on these truths about the human condition, another thing which is important, I think, to keep in mind is that as humans, we are fallible, we are weak, etc. But we also have reason. We also have free will, unlike any other creature. And we are also inherently creative. That's what makes us different from all the other species, which don't have reason, which don't have free will, and are not created. They basically function as a consequence of instinct. But we're different. So our mind allows us to understand the truth about reality as it exists around us, to identify certain universal truths that exist, whether it's through economics, philosophy, theology, whatever it happens to be. But at the same time, those same truths give us reason for hope about how we can improve things, sometimes dramatically, more often incrementally. Well, that's a, a phenomenal way to start off our conversation. I wonder if you could uh, tell us just a little bit more about, um, I'm very intrigued by your degree. I realize that's probably a long time ago now, but um, what motivated you when you were kind of looking at doctoral programs, what motivated you to want to look at both moral philosophy and political economy? Why did, why did you think those things tie together in your research and your academic writing? Well, I've always been very interested in what's called natural law. And that's people like Aristotle, Aquinas, uh, people like Francisco Suarez, people like Samuel von Kuchendorf, Hugo Grotius, C.S. Lewis, etc. Uh, because I think that natural law is the truth about what's called um, philosophical reality. Uh, it is, I think, at the core of the Western tradition. I don't think you can really understand Western civilization without natural law. Uh, so I wanted to study with someone who was doing my doctorate. Um, he was a natural law scholar. I, mean, I ended up doing my doctorate at Oxford with a man named John Finnis, who is probably, I think by any estimation, uh, the world's leading natural law theorist, and maybe the leading natural law theorist of the 20th century. He's mm. still alive. Um, still alive, still writing enormous amounts of work, um, incredibly productive and inspiring man to me. So I was always interested in that because it's part of the Western tradition. It's also, I think, the truth about uh, reason, will, um, 
how we choose the good, how we know evil, etc. But at the same time, and, and I think this has something to do with um, uh, some of my family background, but I was always very interested in economics. I was always very interested in economics as a social science. And by that I mean economics, that not so much what you pick up when you look at an economics textbook today. Mm. So what do you put when you do that? What you pick it up, what you open it up, what you see see is mostly math, mostly equations. Now there's a place for math and there's a place for econometrics in economics. But but economics is really a social science. And it's about exploring certain certain empirical realities about the human being, about human beings, how they interact with each other, what motivates them. What drives them forward? It asks what is, in many cases. Um, now, natural law asks what is, but it also points out what should be and how we should act. Okay. But knowing how we should act also depends upon us knowing certain empirical truths, particularly when it comes to the world of supply and demand. You need to know, for example, if you're trying to build a more just world, you need to know that prices are a reality, and you need to understand what prices do. You need to understand that there is a relationship between supply and demand. You need to understand that um, trade is a generally a mutually beneficial exercise. You need to understand that the division of labor is extremely important if you want to understand human productivity. You need to understand that when it comes to economics and many other spheres of life, it's self-interest. The workings of self-interest. And by that I don't mean greed. Mm. I don't mean greed. Neither did Adam Smith. That's not what he meant. What he meant was this idea that we're looking forward, we're trying to work out what is in our best interests. And our best interest, our self-interest, isn't just limited to material gain. Because as selves, we have a lot of different things that fit into this being who we are. Whether it's our families, whether it's children, whether it's our responsibilities, Etc. Etc. So to reduce self-interest to greed, I think, is a big mistake. That being said, it's very important to understand that people tend to be drawn towards things that they do perceive to be in their self-interest. If you ignore any of those things that I just mentioned, whether it's division of labor, workings of self-interest, whether it's things like the working of prices, whether it's supply and demand, if you ignore all those things as you're trying to recognize what's the best thing to do what is the right thing to do, particularly at the level of government and policy and economic policy and monetary policy, if you don't recognize or refuse to accept these truths for which there is a great deal now of theoretical and empirical proof, you're going to make some serious mistakes. So good intentions and the drive to do good, wanting to do good and avoid evil, which is what natural law is all about, needs to be informed by these very important social sciences. And economics, I happen to think, is a very powerful social science that gives us certain insights into reality. But the flip side of that is that good moral philosophy also points out the limits of economics. The economics can't comprehend the full truth about reality because it's not concerned with trying to understand the full truth about reality. It's about trying to explicate particular dimensions of reality by essentially ignoring other aspects of the human condition. So those were the things I was interested in. I was interested in bringing some of those things together. And, you know, uh, that's how economics generally was done from the 18th century onwards. People like Adam Smith. Adam Smith was not an economist. He was a moral philosopher. His favorite book was His Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is a book about moral psychology. I don't think you can understand Smith. I don't think you can understand his work of nations unless you understand theory of moral sentiments, which in turn is a book that's very influenced by the philosopher David Hume, but also Smith's tutor, the Reverend Francis Hutchinson, who was a natural law and natural rights scholar. So all those influences, I think, had a lot to do with why I got interested in these questions, which I think comes down in many respects to questions. That is fascinating. Uh, I'm a long-term, uh, at least I was a student, but not directly, but through his writings, a student of C.S. Lewis. And ah, so much of what you're describing reminds me of Lewis's book, Abolition of Man, mm-hmm. and what he called the Tao. 
Uh, this sort of, uh, I think uh, Michael Ward describes the Tao as the, the ecology in which uh, ethical action takes place. And as Lewis is trying to describe a, a difficult thing to describe, but sort of the idea that there is, in fact, a moral reality mm-hmm. that we don't see precisely. It's not physically evident to us. And yet we all know that we operate inside of it until you take a philosophy class and are instructed by your philosopher that morals are relative and there's no such thing as objective morality. Lewis pushes back on that and he wants to describe these set of real laws that have been perceived by various cultures throughout human history. And he kind of points to the fact that all these different cultures see these same laws Mm -hmm. as evidence that the law has to exist objectively outside of those cultures. And it seems to me that what you're describing is that there is both a, a an economic reality that we have to respect if we want to see material flourishing in a society, but there is also this moral and political reality that we have to respect if we want to arrange society in such a way that flourishing can exist. Is that is that Absolutely. a fair comparison? No, I think that's, that's, that's a very good summary of what uh, I'm certainly about and what the Acting Institute is about. Because... If you are, I think, serious about the good life, if you're serious about building a society or contributing to a society in which people have the possibility of flourishing as individuals and and communities, you need two things. First of all, you need to know what the content of flourishing is and what is not. And natural law, I think, provides profound insights into that, not least because, as people like Lewis And others have pointed out, most societies, the overwhelming majority of societies, have more or less come to the same conclusion about many of these things without necessarily being in contact with one another. This Mm -hmm. is one of the points that Lewis makes in his book, The Abolition of Man. So that's one thing. Uh, But at the same time, there are these, let's call them social science empirical realities that you also need to take into if you're thinking about, for example, something like what's the best property structure in a society. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence, for example, if you look at Thomas Aquinas and the way that he talks about private property. It's interesting because on the one hand, he talks about these things as necessary for providing people with spheres of freedom, as necessary if people are going to be able to make decisions, etc., But he also justifies private property on grounds that would be described in some respects as economic. So he says, for example, common ownership doesn't work. He says it very clearly, it doesn't work. Um, He also says that it makes sure that we know who is responsible for what. He also says that private property tends to motivate people to be productive, economically speaking, and to use what they have. And their sort of proto-economic insights into why private property works works, and why socialism and collectivism doesn't. And this is someone who's writing in the mid-13th century. Interestingly, uh, Aristotle had arrived at many of the same conclusions when mm-hmm. he came to understanding the nature of property and why private property was, normatively speaking, the preferable economic system when it came to the organization of who owns what. But Aquinas brings together some of these, you might call them economic reasons, why property is normally desirable, but he also has some very good normative arguments for this as well. And what you find in much of the world of philosophy and economics is that philosophers talk a great deal about the good, evil, how to choose good, etc., etc., but they tend to be suspicious of economics. Suspicious of economics because they often think of economics as it's materialistic, it's focused on utility, it's focused upon wealth, etc. It's focused upon exploring empirical questions rather than philosophical questions. Flip that over, you find a lot of economists uh, view philosophy and philosophizing as purely a subjective exercise mm. which you can't measure it. So I often say to people, I spend a great deal of time. And with economists saying to them, look, uh, I believe in the economic technique, I believe in economic methods, I think markets work, I spend a lot of time arguing in favor of these things. Uh, but there is another order of life and of truth into which that all has to fit. When I'm with philosophers, I have to, I'm constantly saying to them, well, that's a very nice idea, but 
you run into a problem there of self-interest or the way that supply and demand works or the need for the division of labor or if you're going to divide things up in this particular way, there are going to be unintended consequences of doing something like that. So I guess what I do and what a lot of the work of people like me involved is trying to bring these things back into conversation with each other so that they can inform each other so that we get back to a type of way of reasoning about the world that's as much as empirical as it is philosophical and is as much philosophical as it is empirical. That all reminds me of a, uh, a line that either comes from a professor I've sat under, uh, Ben Lockard or uh, mm-hmm. Edmund Spencer. I'm not sure. sure which one it originates from, but uh, uh, Dr. Lockard is a frequent quoter of Spencer, so it may be both, but uh, the, the idea that the... Uh, the, the lower does not exist without the higher, and, the, and vice versa. That, that really, for, for Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, part of what he's trying to illustrate in that massive seven-book poem is that the higher ideas depend on the actual lowly deeds to materialize them. But then those deeds that we so often see don't exist without the high ideas that, that motivate them. And if we can get both of those dialoguing with each other, we end up with a much greater view of the whole rather than just focusing on the high idea or the lowly deed. Sure, and this was, this was of course, how much of the academy functioned for a long period of time. Up until probably the early 1960s, you would find that there were people who were more than capable of talking about any number of different subjects in an intelligent and informed way, compared to today, where I think the the excessive specialization that we see in much of the academy, and in the world more generally, means that you often have brilliant economists who sound like a first-year undergraduate student whenever a philosophical question comes Mm. up, and then you have some brilliant philosophers who really could do with doing a basic course in economics, not to change their mind about what they think is philosophically true, but to give them some other in- insights into the nature of the human condition, which the economic technique is particularly good at revealing. And that's the other thing. I mean, you're talking about higher and lower. It's often a question, some of the work that I do and others do, it's a question of bringing together good technique with good ends, good mm-hmm. ends of human choices and good ends of human action. Because you can have lots of good ends in, in an a, and of choices and actions, but if you're using bad economics, you can end up in some very dark places. If, however, you are just doing economics, but you don't concern yourself with the broader goals, the broader philosophical and even moral goals, uh, then it's not quite clear why you're bothering with the technique side of things in the first place. Hmm. So I think... Bringing these things together is very difficult because it means having to think in different ways, at different modes, at different times. But at some time, at some point, bringing the information that's been yielded through these different, very different modes of inquiry together. And political economy does that. I think good philosophy does that as well. Indeed. Well. Sam, in that vein, uh, let me ask you about kind of an, a couple areas of our society where it seems to me we have ignored certain parts of that reality. Uh, I want to start with uh, recent data that's come out based on uh, the most recent U.S. population census that seems to follow a lot of global trends. Uh, I've been fascinated over the last decade. Uh, one of the things I've been very interested in is kind of the attitude that I tend to see science teachers apply when they're teaching uh, middle school and high school students. And a frequent attitude that I've seen is that there's sort of a, a narrative of looming catastrophe and an assumption of what uh, is usually tracked back to Thomas Malthus and the idea that we have to control the population lest we overpopulate the earth. And yet, the data does not in any way show danger of overpopulation. Instead, it shows in Western countries a sharp decline over the last 20 to 30 years. But noticeably, uh, the U.S. birth rate is now at 1.4 uh, children per woman of childbearing age, with no real consensus in the scientific community about why that is. There's, I've seen plenty of theories, uh, but that seems to me to pose a, it suggests that we've done something wrong. 
uh, that, that somehow there's something where a very natural, very human process is either we've either messed up in chemistry that would enable that, or we have somehow lost some key part of the human experience that uh, ties into motivation and choices. So I wonder if you could just share with us your thoughts about what what what's happening in that number, and what what if so is there, is there yeah just start there what what's happening in that number? Well, <clears throat> the population decline that marks Western countries, including the United States, but actually marks pretty much all the world now. I think it it flows from a number of causes. One, of course, is um, um, sexuality, sex was was understood for millennia as basically concerned with two things. One is the expression of, of marital love, and the second is the procreation of children, always together and never apart. Right? Now, we've separated those things out over the past 50 years, and so sex has become disconnected, which is a very powerful thing. Right? Sex is a very, very powerful thing. That might be the one thing we could say that uh, Sigmund Freud was right about. That he was certainly <laughs> right to point out the power well, and the motivation. It's a very powerful thing, and there's reasons why the best philosophers have said, best philosophers and best theologians for that matter, have said that this is something human beings need to master. Not master in the sense of reduce it just to um, just an exercise, but to be able to direct in the right direction. But we've separated those things out. The advent of um, uh, easily available contraception, shifting attitudes towards sex, the purpose of sex, which really became manifest towards the end of the 19th century and then really took off, of course, in the 20th century. So the way that people think about and treat sex, and I'm not an expert on that particular subject, but <laughs> but the way that people think and talk about that is, ob- is obviously very different from how people talked about that a long time ago. So that's one thing. Uh, a second thing, there is an economic dimension to this. And the economic dimension is that once upon a time, people, one reason, not the only reason, but one reason a lot of people had children was, first of all, they were in agricultural settings, and you needed people to work on farms. You didn't have extensive technology and machinery like we do today. And so many farming families, which is where most of the population were, had lots of children. It was, it was partly because they, they did not disconnect sex from, from marriage, so to speak, and having children, but it was also an economic thing. We need to have more children because we need people to work the farm. We also had, had, we're living at a time when people, most people didn't get beyond the age of 30. At least half of children died mm. before they even got to the age of five. So that's another, that's another set of changes that has occurred. So the movement from rural areas to urban areas has had a significant effect upon demographic trends. Um, the third trend, at least in, in, in Western countries, is the emergence of the welfare state. Up until 1910, which is when the welfare state really started to take off in Britain, and, and it started even earlier in, it really began in Bismarck's Germany, 1870s, 1880s, um, family was your welfare state, right? So you, a lot of people would have a lot of children so that at least some of those children would take the aging parents into their home later in life. Mm, okay. um, there's a fair amount of evidence to say that if you have a welfare state, then big welfare states like we do have today, particularly in Western Europe, we shouldn't be surprised that people say, well, I don't I don't need to have as many children now. I'm living in the city, so I don't, I'm working in a job where having lots of children is not going to impact the way that I uh, perform my particular profession. Uh, but also, when I retire, there's this thing called the welfare state that's going to take care of me. So I'll just have one or two children, and that's pretty much it. So those are some of the trends that have come into play. The way we understand sex, the way we understand marriage, the way we put those things together or take them apart. Um, the shift in the shift in um, uh, the nature and basis of what most people do in economic life, and the emergence of the welfare state. Now, of course, the one thing I have not mentioned in this regard is the sort of catastrophism that really took off in the 
Well, really the 20th century, the early 20th century. You see this sort of theme of overpopulation, of becoming overpopulated. This is really bad. It's going to destroy the environment. We're going to literally eat ourselves, our planet to death, etc. We can't possibly sustain so many people, etc. That became an established orthodoxy mm. throughout many Western countries, uh, despite the fact that there's really no evidence that, that, that there is even such a thing as overpopulation, that we, we have mastered the ways to feed ourselves. We, have, we don't have a problem of not enough food in the world. In fact, in some respects, in parts, parts of the world, like particularly the wealth of, wealthier parts of the world, we actually have too much food, if you like. You can see it, just walk, walk around and look at people, right? I have an uncle who is he receives an a uh, an annual check so that he does not plant any corn on his farm, but he he still receives that old subsidy. Right. So this is not a so the, so some of the things that that many people imagined at the beginning of the twentieth century and up on really until the really the mid nineteen late nineteen eighties that orthodoxy about overpopulation was extremely widespread, particularly among intellectuals particularly among people working on, on demographic questions, particularly among what you might call white liberals. Um, remember in 1968, Paul Ehrlich published his book, The Population Bomb, which said that you know, within a few years, the world would be starving to death, we'd be eating each other's resources, etc., etc. None of it happened. And none of it happened because population trends didn't go the way that he said they would, but also because he didn't downplay human creativity. He downplayed and didn't take into account the ability of human beings to use their creativity, their will, and their reason to work out solutions to problems. Um, I think it was the, um, the economist Julian Simon, he's a secular Jewish fellow who wrote a lot about population, uh, but he said that the greatest human resource is the human being him or herself. And the, uh, the theologian Michael Novak said the greatest resource is more than just a human person, it's the human mind. That is the greatest source of capital that exists. And that is how we mastered some of these problems. And I think now the problem is not one of uh, how do we um, uh, contain the growth of population. The decline of population is a very serious economic Decline of population, not just in the West and around the world, partly because all our welfare systems are structured on the premise that we replace ourselves. <laughs> that's, that's how our welfare systems are structured. At the moment, we're not replacing ourselves, which is why we see a lot of people wondering whether welfare systems, particularly in Western Europe, but I say in the United States as well, are going to be able to sustain themselves. You need to have you know, more children to maintain this system over time. Which are currently working population that is funding the welfare programs right. that are currently serving those exactly who are right. able to draw on them. That's right. So this is a major, major problem. And the other thing I often say is that every person that doesn't exist, that's another potential source of wealth that doesn't mm. exist. So and there were people in the, 19, in the 20th century, uh, people like the Economist, um, who's now decided, died a few, quite a few years ago, but uh, a man named Colin Clark, who was an economist of demography. He wrote about um, national statistics. Brilliant man in many respects. But he was, he was in, in, in the 1930s, he was arguing that this notion of overpopulation was false and that decline of population was not a road that you wanted to go down. And he was talking just on economic grounds. He had normative arguments about all these things as well. But he said that on economic grounds, this is not a path you want to go down. And I think in many Western countries, we're now seeing the results of that. But isn't it interesting? Even today, you still hear people talking about overpopulation or people giving awards to Prince Harry and, um, and Princess Meghan for only having two children. It's, it's, it's a type of orthodoxy that... I think he's on the decline now, but there's an extraordinary number of people that still believe it. It's a it, it's a it's a compelling narrative, but it is uh, I I suppose fortunately it's a false narrative. It's a very false it, narrative. it takes a long time to uproot false right. narratives that have spread over time. 
particularly among intellectuals. They're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 we, this could take us on a whole different tangent, but the, the spread of Marxism in the 20th century American Academy is, is another example of that. I mean, it was clearly a, it was a flawed ideology when applied to mass governance. I mean, that, that was evident. And the you, economy. And uh, both of which were evident to anyone who uh, began with the assumption that humans are fallible and we cannot have perfect knowledge of all human movement. If you begin with those assumptions, Marxism fails immediately. Well, that was, of course, the problem with um, socialism and communism, right? Because I think it was the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, and then this argument was further developed by another Austrian economist, Friedrich von Hayek, it was called the knowledge problem. The knowledge problem is this, that if you're going to have a command economy or a socialist economy or even something like a central bank, you're presuming that a person or a small group of people or a government or a legislature or 18 central bank governors can somehow know everything that they would need to know to be able to plan an economy, but you're asking them to know things they can't possibly do. No one can know um, the actual real price for everything at any one moment in time without <laughs> without the workings of a free price system. That's the only way you can know these things. But socialism rules out free prices because everything is dictated from the top down, including prices. And people like Mises and Hayek and others said, look, socialism just on on technical grounds, can't work because of this knowledge problem, because it means getting rid of the free price system. If you get rid of the free price system, then you end up with a disjunct between supply and demand because you can't know, producers can't know how much and what to supply and at what price, and consumers can't know what's the best price for anything at any one moment in time. So this is a, a very classic example of why Good economics, which a lot of which focuses upon what's called price theory, tells you certain realities about the human condition which would be very unwise to not realize. That reminds me of a conversation I had a few weeks ago with a shoe salesman from Chicago. He was at, we were at a national debate tournament at the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Ah, run by Anthony Schley. Yes, uh, and, uh, great economic history. Yes, and uh, uh, Mr. Bob Luddy funds the prizes for that. And uh, we actually had, I had a couple students who made it into out rounds this year, which was very exciting. But I was sitting there in the judges' lounge talking to a man who runs a shoe store. And he was talking about uh, the way the uh, COVID shutdowns have affected supplies of sure. national brands of shoes. I did not know that it takes about six months for a shoe to go from the factory floor of just components to a shoe store. So. Uh, he mentioned a shoe that I've bought for years, New Balance tennis shoes. Uh, he cannot get them. People keep asking. He thinks it's going to be at least uh, another 6 to 18 months before the supply chain has restarted. Uh, this got me thinking about the just the complexity of all of the systems that have naturally arisen. I, mean, it's what, I think it's also part of what Adam Smith intended to communicate with the, the invisible hand metaphor, that sure. you can't see a craftsmen out there doing this, but when you look at a functioning economy, you're seeing literally millions of individual self-interest motivated choices that all work together in a way that when you try and map it out on a blueprint or a spreadsheet, you can get a lot of details there, but you don't capture the whole. It's impossible to capture the whole. Well, that complexity, the only way of capturing that complexity in terms of knowing Knowing, having an accurate understanding of what's available and what's not, what you need, what you don't need, what your customer base is, you need a free price system. That is what enables us to master this complexity mm. that you're talking about. And, you know, people have tried to come up with all sorts of alternatives. And people often talk about AI. AI is going to resolve this. Well, a, the problem with AI is that it can't know the future. It can't know what is going to it can't know things that are unknown. It can't do that. Prices can't know that either, but at least they can adjust very quickly. Um, that is the only way that, that we've been able to 
mastered this. And what's interesting about that is it wasn't imposed from the top down, it emerged from below. And that's what enables us to master complexity, to master the workings of markets in a way that we at least have the information, that we, some of the information that we need if we're going to be making informed choices about what we sell and what we buy in light of our needs, needs of our families, and all the other millions of people out there who have similar needs and often competing needs as well. Well, Sam, that's probably a great point to transition to one other area that I wanted to, to get your thoughts on. Uh, you recently published an essay with Law and Liberty and their, their periodical uh, looking at the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated, I'll admit. Uh, I, found it, I, I don't read a ton about the gold standard. Uh, I do occasionally have family members who try to convince me that I need to invest in gold and that will just solve everything. Uh, but your essay went a very unexpected route. I was really intrigued by the idea that actually being on the gold standard limits governments in a way, mm-hmm. and so that governments can do different things when they are not tied to the gold standard. Could you could you kind of share that sure. argument with us and help us see where, what, what's going on there? Well, the occasion for the article is that August uh, 2021, it's the 50th anniversary of Richard Nixon, taking the United States dollar off gold, which basically was the death knell of the Bretton Woods Agreement, which was the monetary arrangements that have governed the world really since World War II, um, but also was the last link with what was called the classical gold standard, which was basically the international monetary system that existed between the late 1870s up until the beginning of the First World War. And this was the idea that the currency currency was tied to a fixed amount of gold. And governments didn't run monetary policy in the way that they do now. They didn't sort of look at all the different data out there and try and come up with some sort of figure. Well, this is going to be the ideal interest rate that's going to benefit the economy in 9, 10, 11, 15 years' time, whatever it happens to be. No, the gold standard was much more just sort of automatic. Prices, the value of money adjusted um, in light of uh, shifts in the balance of gold deposits that are held by different countries. Um, and this was very important because it basically meant that, um, that stable money persisted. So you didn't have, inflation really wasn't an issue in many of these circumstances. Oh my. So this is this is now. There's all sorts of disadvantages to the gold standard I could tell you about, but this was the this was the monetary system that prevailed for a long period of time. It provided what I think was an unprecedented degree of monetary stability. But this fell apart at the beginning of the First World War because governments needed to engage in inflationary financing in order to fund the war effort. Right? So um, getting back on the gold standard was a very difficult exercise, and they tried in the 1920s, and it basically broke down in the 1930s as a consequence of the Depression. Now, um, one of the things I say with all that background there is to say that um, you might ask, well, why aren't we going back to something like that? And there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, some people think there are some some disadvantages to the gold standard, and there are. There are some disadvantages. But one of the things I was arguing in, in this article was that Governments don't like things like gold standards that basically fix the price of money so that it becomes relatively stable. They don't like it because what it means is it takes away monetary policy as an interventionist tool to try and either stimulate the economy at one period of time or slow the economy down at another so, for example, um, when we're in when we're in recession, governments typically lower the discount rate so that there's more money flowing into the economy. The idea being that this will boost the economy, this will stimulate the economy, it'll get things going again. Uh, and on the other side, so when, but when the economy overheats, it gets too busy. It's they say, well, let's raise the discount rate so that we make the price of money more expensive. This will slow things, calm things down. And central banks basically try and play this game of managing the the, uh, the boom-bust cycle over a period of time by manipulating um, 
we're just declaring that this is going to be the interest rate for this period of time. So that's that's but you can't do that with the gold standard. With the gold standard, you can't do that. Well, all you simply do is adjust the discount rate depending on the exports and imports. That's all you do. You don't look ahead and try and predict what's going to be the ideal interest rate in 10, 12, 15, 20 months' time. You don't do it. So governments, it basically something like a gold standard or something like fixed rates basically removes the capacity of the government to do this. And governments don't like that. They don't like that because it means that if they're going if there are economic problems, it means they often have to make difficult, necessary, but deeply unpopular decisions. Like, for example, guess what? The economy is overheating. We can't use monetary policy because we have a gold standard, so we're going to have to cut spending. Governments generally don't like having to do that. Or the labor market is really sclerotic, it's very rigid. We've got to do something about this. Hmm, well, we can't use monetary policy because it's tied to the gold standard, so I guess we're going to have to take on those big, powerful unions who are basically controlling the price of Governments don't like doing that. So um, there's all sorts of different arguments about the strengths and weaknesses of the gold standard, but I don't think we should underestimate that a lot of opposition to it comes from the idea that governments should be able to use monetary policy to stimulate or cool down the economy. And part of the problem, of course, is that you run into the knowledge issue again. No one can know. I don't know. You don't know. Of the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank or the Bank of England, they don't know what is going to be the optimal interest rate in the United States, in Virginia, in the town of Ireland. They don't know what it's going to be. No one can know that, let alone in 10 months' time. You just can't know these sorts of things. And so that's why a lot of monetary policy goes wrong. It's not because people are of bad will. We're just assuming that they can know certain things that no one it's often said that central, the central banking is a sort of the last bastion of central planning. Well, there's something to be said for that. Now, I mean, there's a, I'm open to all sorts of alternatives when it comes to monetary systems. I'm not, I'm not what you might call a gold bug. I'm not obsessed with gold. I don't think that gold is the only <laughs> way. And I, you know, we all meet people like that. Um, but I will say that the gold standard had more merits than demerits and that when we look at the way that monetary policy is running today, we surely should be able to come up with some better alternatives to the current system. I think that takes us back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation in terms of uh, whether or not we are tied to reality or whether mm. we're moving away from that. And it, it seems to me, at least, that watching uh, President Biden's budget attempting to kind of go through Congress and uh, one day it's $206 billion, the next day it's $1.3 trillion, and uh, it, it just seems as if these numbers are practically meaningless, and that as long as the Federal Reserve can create more money and announce to the American people that there will be no inflation, they're, they're fine with doing that, uh, despite our, at least currently, as I keep seeing lots of headlines saying we are at clearly 5% over last year's prices on basic consumer goods. We have an obvious inflation that I feel at the pump in the grocery store. I'm sure you see it in all kinds of places. But the gold standard at least seems to me like, from what you're, you're, if I understand your argument correctly, it would be something closer to having money that is made more real rather than less real as a... Well, that was always the argument that you hear a lot of people make about gold, uh, the gold standard. It ties money to something tangible that for centuries people have attached enormous value to inside cultures, across cultures. Um, that's why gold was seen as very important. That's why the value of currency was attached to gold. It was seen as something real. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be gold. It could be a, um, a collection of commodities. People like Friedrich Hayek said, for example, he said he was fine with gold, but he said there's lots of other different ways we could come up with this, whereby we tie the value of money to something that the government cannot arbitrarily manipulate. Because that's what you have when you end up with fiat money. You're basically at the mercy of either an independent central bank, 
which often turns out to be not so important, or you're at the mercy of politicians. And in the case of um, if it's politicians, then their horizons are going to be much more limited, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly in democratic systems, they're going to be thinking about, I want interest rates to be here at this point, but when we get closer to the election, I want them to come down. But what if it's not good for the economy to come down? What if it's not good for the economy for the interest rate to be reduced? So, so this is the problem you run into. We basically have a system now where it's more or less, it's fiat money. Another way of describing it is it's political. money. Mm. It's driven by political imperatives. Now, central bankers are a mixed lot. There are some who I think are very responsible and don't respond to, who are very resistant to political pressure, but a lot are not as well. Like I think the current, um, the current uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve. Um, but that being said, it does seem to me that rules, and I don't really care what the, how you do it, but rules-based monetary order is a much better long-term approach to ensuring monetary stability than having 18, 21 people make decisions every three months about what is <laughs> going to be the optimal interest rate for the for a $21 trillion economy in 18 months' time. So, as I said, I'm not gold is great, but there's other ways you could, there's probably a lot of other ways we could do it. But what I do know is that political money, a politically driven uh, monetary policy, is usually a very bad idea. Well, Dr. Greg, thank you so much for uh, those, those thoughts. I think it's very helpful. You're, you're making some very complicated things, hopefully more clear for our listeners. Uh, as we uh, wrap up today, I do want to uh, ask you for any book recommendations you might want to pass on to our audience, particularly related to I mean, we've, our conversation has ranged across uh, morality and natural law and political economy and uh, monetary policy mm. and a little bit on gold and a little bit on population data. But any, based on this conversation, any books you would recommend to people who are intrigued by what we were discussing and want to kind of get into some of these issues? Okay, well, let me give you, uh, let me give you four texts. First text I'd highly recommend for those who are interested in natural law theory is um, John Finnis's 1980 book, Natural Law and Natural Rights. It's not an easy read, but I think it is a very powerful statement of what natural law is and what it isn't and how it relates to natural law, relates particularly to legal order uh, and political order, and giving notions of human rights a coherent content. I think it's a masterful book. Very difficult, but I'd, I'd recommend people read it, or some, some abridged version of it if they can find such a thing. The second thing I'd highly recommend reading is, um, again, not an easy book to read, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Mm. Surely one of the most important books ever written, in the sense that uh, the basic foundations of modern economics are clearly and well established there, and it's written, you know, it's written as you would expect a book in the 18th century to be written, but it's remarkably accessible uh, once you get used to the style of writing. So that's a second book I would highly recommend. Uh, a third book I'd recommend is a book called A Humane Economy by a German uh, for an economist named Wilhelm Rope, R-O-P-K-E. Uh, it's a very good book which brings together serious reflection upon moral questions with serious reflection upon economics uh, and uh, economic policy. He was also very interested in natural law, so he's another person I would highly recommend. Uh, for those who are interested in the knowledge knowledge issue, which we've talked a lot about today, I'd re recommend reading Friedrich Hayek's writings on this subject, particularly um, uh, his Nobel Prize speech of 1975, I believe it was, uh, where he talks about the knowledge problem, which is based upon an essay he wrote in 1945 on this question of economic knowledge and what we can know and what we can't know. Uh, for those of you who are interested in monetary policy, I'd uh, highly recommend um, a book that was published, I think, first of all in 1920 by Ludwig von Mises called The Theory of Money and Credit, which I think is still a masterful account of what, what money is and how monetary policy ought uh, to function. Um, and the other book I'd recommend, and it's, I don't think it's available in English, it's called... Um, 
Logger Social, L L, O R D R E Social, by a French economist named um, Jacques Rueff, R E U. Uh, I'm sorry, R-U-E-F-F, who I think was masterly defender of the gold standard and the case for um, stable money, probably the foremost thinker in that regard in the 20th century. That is a very impressive uh, list of recommendations. Uh, for our listeners who are keeping count, I believe we are up to six recommendations that will all be located. Uh, in the show notes. So we'll have links to those, uh, including uh, the work in French. Uh, and if any listeners do make their way through the work in French, please do write in and let us know uh, how, how, that, how that adventure goes. Uh, well, Sam, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I feel like I've learned a lot from, uh, uh, from our conversation. Uh, where can people find your work online if they want to follow your work? Well, they can go to the Acton Institute website and you'll find my bio there and links to different pieces. Uh, in terms of um, books, you can go and just go to Amazon. You'll find um, put my name in and you'll see different books come up. Um, if you look interested in sort of writings that are, let's call them long read pieces between 1,000 and 2,000 words, um, I'd suggest a website you mentioned before, Lauren Liberty, where I'm a contributing editor. I'd also recommend another uh, place called Public Discourse. It's another place where I've written extensively on a number of uh, some of these questions. So that's where I'd say most of my uh, longer form writings are to be found. And there's quite a bit on that sheet. Fantastic. For our listeners and uh, viewers, for those of you watching via YouTube, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I'm your host, Josh Herring. My guest today is Dr. Sam Gregg. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, We're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.